Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the other members of the roundtable to discuss the contents of another weekend's. But first, I had the pleasure this week of sitting down with Makoto Fujimura, author of Silence and Beauty, Hidden Faith, Born of Suffering. It's, it's actually a book inspired by Shusako Endo's novel, Silence, which is the subject of Martin Scorsese's forthcoming film by the same title. The novel took visual artist Makoto Fujimura on a pilgrimage of grappling with the nature of art, the significance of pain, and his own Japanese-American cultural heritage. He knows Martin Scorsese quite well and was consulted during the making of the film. I had the pleasure of sitting down with him in his studio right outside Princeton, New Jersey. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Makoto Fujimura. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. So you have met Martin Scorsese. I have um, several times now. And uh, the first meeting compelled me or convinced me to write the book, although we didn't talk about the book in particular, but I wanted to gauge why he was making the film. What? So how did that, did you guys just have a mutual friend? I mean, this is before Facebook, yeah, right? So, you didn't have a mutual Facebook friend. That yeah. So the, so the person who um, well, asked me to write the book uh, is Mark Rogers um, of Wedgwood Circle in DC. He, he, he and I met when, when I was doing National Council on the Arts work, um, volunteering for U.S. arts advocacy. And so uh, he asked me if I would write this book on silence and I didn't want to. <laughs> so, why, why did you not want to? What was re- with the reticence? Well, there's just a lot of um, trauma behind it. And, and part of it is my own personal journey that I describe in the book. I knew I had to go through them, you know, and I've written about them before and I didn't want to go through it again. Um, but also Endo is not an easy person to write about. Um, and at the time, this is before I began to do some research, but um, I, I, I felt like I didn't know if I could do a good job. He's, he's, he's a bit intimidating um, to write, a very challenging author in many levels. And, but as I note in the book, you know, at the end of my journey writing this I, I, he, he kind of became like a mentor to me, um, a very intimate, compassionate side of Endo kept on coming out. Um, and this is the Endo that I got to know through this journey. So it's interesting that you and Scorsese have this relationship with someone who neither of you have, have met. Well, he, 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 he spent time with Endo. Okay, yes. When, when, when he read Silence, he uh, went to Endo and um, I believe met him several times, spent a lot of time researching, and then they, they were able to meet before uh, Endo passed away in 1996. So. But you had never met. You had ne- never no, met him. No, I haven't. And this is part of the story is um, when I was in Japan uh, studying there as a national scholar, this ancient 17th century art form, uh, basically, and and then you know, it's now called Nihonga, but 
um, I was there for six and a half years pursuing my master's degree and then post-MFA degree. Uh, and Endo was lecturing at the time, you know, and I had just become a Christian um, through my wife and several um, um, influences that I... By the way, does your wife feel like that's one of the key missionary dating wins of the late 20th century, <laughs> at least in the evangelical world. I mean, you're a pretty big get for the team, right? On any, on any, well, on any scale, international you, you, artist. You, yeah, I mean. you can ask her, you know, her opinion of all this. You know, she, she's pretty, not blasé about it, but she, you know, she, I mean, I'm, I'm just the same person who's, 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 who's found the light, you know. And I think in some ways she's surprised, like, you know, I... I didn't just start walking with Jesus. I started running and <laughs> doing all these things. And she wasn't expecting that. You know, she, she thought, you know, me finding Christ was very important, obviously. But. You talk in the book about how in Japan, what seemed to be missing in missionary efforts was the emphasis on a conditional kind of father love yeah, as opposed yeah. to the maternal, yes, no like unconditional, yeah. like uncontrolling kind yeah, of love. It, yeah. Was that the key? I mean, was she pretty hands off as far as my wife? Yeah, yeah, very hands off. I mean, she was she's a psychotherapist, and um, so, um, but you know, our relationship um, is based on this deep friendship. So I was very interested in what she was interested in, and and she had an awakening, spiritual awakening experience after we got married. So that that was very significant you know to for me to watch her change so you just say we call it even you had an awakening had a conversion <laughs> we could just call it you know, squid. that's right that's I, right <laughs> so at any point with scorsese were you ever like look we, you know we've shared here a bond here can i just get like a small part it doesn't have to be a big part in the film <laughs> a good looking guy japanese I mean, I'm an artist. I've done two mediums. Yeah, I write. One I, of the visual. producers suggested I walk out to set. I, <laughs> but, but you know, jokingly, so, yeah. But I mean, it was it was such a um, you know first time we met. It wasn't. Uh, it was a supposed to be a very short conversation, um, and I think we were there for like 45 minutes or something talking about being a, being a father in New York. You know, New York mm. City, raising a kids. Mm. Um, so. We we had, I think, I, I understand that reality of being an artist, a uh, very significant voice in culture. Um, uh, his is far beyond what anybody's might be. But you know, you're you're a human being trying to um, live out your calling um, and and trying trying to be a good father. You know, and and that that came across to me so vividly um, that this project even was in some ways dedicated to his daughter and that was very important to him. You talk in, in, in your book about how part of, I mean, your own conversion to Christianity came mm -hmm. as a result of ex going to study in Japan. Yeah. Now you were born in the States yes. to Japanese yeah. parents. Right. How, how many times had you been back and forth? So Japan? I've been back and forth quite a bit. I, my father is a research scientist. And um, so after Boston. We were in Sweden and Stockholm, and and then in Japan. Uh, I went to grade school in Japan, and we came back for uh, middle school and high school in New Jersey, and I went to university in Pennsylvania, and uh, met my wife two years in Connecticut, then back to Japan. 
So you, you picked up on it. I brought a, to- a copy of the Seven Story Mountain. I wanted yes. to re- I wanted to read some a passage that came sure. to mind because of the way you described Japan in the book. Um, Merton's talking about as a child moving back to France from New York, yeah. and he says, um, "How did it ever happen that when the dregs of the world had collected in Western Europe, when Goth and Frank and Norman and Lombard had mingled?" with a rot of old Rome to form a patchwork of hybrid races, all of them notable for ferocity, hatred, stupidity, craftiness, lust, and brutality. How did it happen that from all this there should come Gregorian chant, monasteries and cathedral, the poems of Prudentius, the commentaries and histories of Bede, the Moralia of Gregory the Great, St. Augustine's City of God and His Trinity, the writings of St. Anselm, St. Bernard's sermons on mechanicals, the poetry of Cademan and Sinwolf, and Longland, and Dante, yeah. St. Thomas, Susuma, and the Oxenese of Scotus. And he said that when he returned to France in 1925, returning to the land of my birth, I was also returning to the fountains of the intellectual and spiritual life of the world to which I belonged. Yeah. I was returning to spring of natural waters, if you will, but waters purified and cleaned by grace with such powerful effect that even the corruption and decadence of the French society of our day have never been able to poison them entirely or reduce them once again to their original and barbarian corruption. And you talk about Japan. In the beginning of your book, you talk about negative space and how yeah. negative space frames artwork. Yes. And you say Christianity, you don't view Japan as a pagan nation, but right. a deeply Christian nation framed, though, by right. a Christian influence and persecution yeah. and in the negative yeah. space the negative to this day. Can you this. say Because I was thinking yeah. about so, like, how you talk about Japan is so deeply emotionally connected with like right. Merton. So, so what's interesting about that Merton passage is that's exactly what Endo, reason why Endo went to France. That's what he wanted to access. And But what happened was when he landed in Paris, went to University of Lyon, he discovered this, the corrupt side of Paris, you know, Paris with um, the, all the, um, you know, Catholic faith, history, starting to disappear the, the, with existentialists and, you know, so many thought patterns that were, were uh, refusing to embrace all that Merton is, is writing about. And, and Endo himself, you know, experiencing discrimination, uh, and then he became ill. He, uh, he was hospitalized for tuberculosis ended up in an isolation ward in, in Paris. So, so that's, that, uh, yes, it, it, it does overlap with my affection for Japan, but it, it's, it's at the same time, it, it reminds me of what Endo's journey was like. And, and the two overlaps of, you know, cultures, um, and, and Endo had this very peculiar and intense relationship with Japanese culture. And he, is a person who understood, uh, I think, 20th century Japanese psyche very well, but at the same time, he felt alienated from that himself. And I, I feel the same way there, you know. So I think part of this writing, this book has revealed is how much of that negative imprint that was left in Japanese culture, uh, what Flannery O'Connor will say, you know, the South is, uh, is Christ-haunted. In a very similar way, Japan is Christ-haunted um, because of the 250 years of persecution and more, uh, the isolationist nationalism that ensued from that, and what Merton describes 
this, you know, Paris, despite all of that, birthing cultures um, that that have so deep resonance to spirituality. I would say the same thing about Japan. Mm. Yeah, and and there is something very significant about that overlap. Uh, overlap that Endo himself pursued with someone like yourself that's had a journey where you've come up in so many worlds. Yeah. I, mean, I would guess an advantage of that yeah. is that you, you probably have developed some skills cross-culturally to move in and out of it. But does it lead to like a, a loneliness? Oh, yeah. No, you, I, I struggled with that um, throughout my youth. You know, I, I was always misfit. I didn't fit in. You know, not only I was um, in Japan, I was not really Japanese. In you know, America, I was Japanese. And, and and I had to operate in, in uh, linguistically. I, I, I feel like I never mastered either language that well. You know, I'm struggling to express myself in both cultures, and 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 art has given me this way to communicate. And but the more I develop that sense of intuition and integration, the more of a misfit uh, you become. And, um, you know, you try to fit in and at, at, at the end of the day, you, you kind of have to say, well, you know, that is part of my calling. And, and, and in, in a way, you, as you're noting, uh, there's object, objectivity you have because you don't fit in. Um, you know, you have this uncanny ability to identify with those who are in similar, similar plights and, and understand that there is uh, language beyond the borders. You know, there's, there's this margin, liminal space language that can exist uh, that the poets of old, um, all of these writers, Merton mentions, you know, Dante's of the world, um, you know, Hemingway, Dante, you know, the, these writers who came out of trauma, uh, thinkers and writers and um, people who created beauty, you know, um, out of very, very desperate, despair-filled world, right? And and this is that kind of place um, I totally understand because of that marginalized reality you you're you're inhabiting uh, all the time. Yeah, you you talk in the book a lot about trauma. You, you say that that often God meets us in the ground zeros of our yeah, lives. Yeah. And you were in New York, right, yeah, at nine eleven. Right, Your right. studio was just a couple blocks from. Right, we live three blocks away. I mean. That that I had to, I mean, the mass trauma that I can't imagine being a New Yorker. Well, and having having three young children, and you know, trying to decide whether we will stay staying men, you know, because you don't want to move them out of the schools, um, which was, uh, you know, fast becoming the only place where they feel normal, you know, so. By moving out, it's 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 going to add to the trauma. So we felt like, you know, not only we were called to stay, but for our children's sake, that that this was, despite it feels like the Merton quote again, you know, despite all that is happening, that this this trauma that is everywhere, grounds or ashes everywhere, um, that we were meant to be there for uh, for time and. And that our children grew up in that, and you know, so, so that is part of our um, past. And I, um, happy to say, my my children grew, you know, came out um, very resilient. Um, they, they they are like these people who had to think about community and had to think about creating beauty 
um, had to think beyond what they were faced with um, to use their imagination to you know uh, well uh, to to create a better better world and and because I think we so focused on that you know this um, this conversation about feeling marginalized or feeling disaffected by um, what is going on around us you know um, they they in some ways have this immunity you know and and it's really interesting to watch them especially after this election and you know what's going on in the world you know the 9-11 taught us a lot about the nature of the world nature of the universe uh fragmentation polarization um and there was no question that you know that they would have to find find ways to get beyond that so so part of the book silence and beauty is is really about re-examining that you know for for myself through and those life and and those writings and this is what i wasn't sure about what i would discover there whether that this will be more despair filled and nihilistic and uh traumatizing or is it something that will i i wasn't expecting to receive hope uh, actually, um, I was. I just wanted to make sure that, uh, especially uh, American readers, you know, read and though English speaking, I guess uh, people that they have a context to properly assess his writings. Part of what you, you talk about in the book that this is when I mean, you talk about Endo's own failures of health, his, yeah. his inability to yeah. finish his dissertation, yeah. so many, and then yeah. and experiences with alienation and betrayal, yeah. and, and he's yeah. drawn. You yeah. say to a story of these persecuted yes. Japanese Christians of failed faith and right, broken and, right, right. and we, broken we, faith. Yeah, yeah. Is there any other kind? What do you mean, like in, in Japan or? or anywhere? I mean, I wonder. Oh, I see. In terms of faith, well, this is precisely what Endo's thesis is. I, I, I think he, he would argue that there isn't that. You know, we we are. You know, it's it's funny because in Japan, I was with a pastor. Um, in Japan about three weeks ago. And he was confessing that, you know, when you really think about it, his ancestor, his lineage, is either those people who rejected faith and survived, <laughs> stepped on the Fumie and, you know, um, just hid their faith, or one holding the sword <laughs> mm. to kill them if they said they were Christian. They're, you know, like the martyrs are dead. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. you're unlikely to find your ancestor to be a martyr, right? And and so l- chances are that you are a child of mm. this failed faith or aggressor uh, of someone trying to stamp out faith. So that everybody in Japan is dealing with that trauma at, at the deepest level of their DNA, you know, that, that there is something ongoing that keeps coming up and and this is probably reason why faith in japan christian faith is so hard to retain and but at at the same time as you note is this not a universal story and this is what endo is convinced about as well you know so a soldier in paris who um has to interrogate a seminarian you know which is his first book um white man isn't that soldier as traumatized in the same sense as the Japanese seminarian who is getting interrogated? Who wins? Um, and if there is, 
there are no winners here, then and how, how does faith survive in such a context? And I am convinced that and though came to understand the suffering of Christ as the only way, only path um, to understand himself, understand these trauma, the, the victims as well as the you know people, the aggressors. But but that all of that is pointing to this universal reality of of human trauma and and that Christian gospel is large enough. God is large enough, even though that grace may appear in very counterintuitive, contradictory ways. You know that we can't um, ex- we can't expect it to be linear and you know uh, black and white. Yeah, and you say Andrew is almost like a mystery now. Now, right? yes, in, some, right. in some sense, that's right. And is that some of that is to learn the lesson, right? That yeah, things are more ambiguous, right? Grayer. Uh, then, right. but we tend to not like con- I mean, right. humans. We don't like cognitive dissonance, so we kind of rush right. to judgments and constructs that that's make things correct. Work. And he sets it up um, so well. His all of his writings are crafted so well, and and so you're forced to reckon with you know your own judgment about characters, situation, um, you know, decisions, and and at the end of the the novel he layers them so that you have to get to the end you know to understand like why you thought this way in the beginning you know this is this is a complete setup and you know what's interesting about silence is that in in the english version there's the appendix in, in japanese version there's no word appendix it's just a letter written a histor- historical document at the end but that's the beginning of Endo's journey. You know, these these are the notes that he took, and he only had a couple pages of information about Father Kira, who is an Italian Jesuit missionary who ended up in Japan, ended up um, being captured, and 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 um, he lived in this place in Tokyo, Edo, of the time uh, for a long time. And you know, there was. I mean, this is this is a disgraced priest that nobody wants to own, you know. <laughs> and Japanese have rejected that entire past of Christianity, and and what you know, they, they certainly don't want to talk about this. And and of course, the Vatican doesn't want to talk about this, right? So this 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 person exists in, in, in this in, in this very marginalized, um, weakened state of of. Uh, you know, but it's it's about a scant memory, and then Endo endeavors to resurrect this person. So the appendix is the beginning, but you won't understand the appendix until you read the whole thing and have and in some ways been devastated because you now identify with this historical character who is a reality that um, you know the hi- history would try to wipe out, like we tried to wipe out, and now in in the form of Father Rodriguez played by Andrew Garfield, <laughs> directed by Martin Scorsese, this is going to be, you know, the, the statement made from the rooftops of Hollywood mm. into the world. And this this strange reality, right, of the invisible voice becoming this most resonant, powerful voice uh, in culture is exactly what Endo endeavored to mm. do. Uh, and, and he layered his writings. So that's where we end up. But in the beginning, we have to be mindful that many of the clues that he sets up mm. are misleading, intentionally mm. so. And, and so many readers fall into the, the trap that he sets. 
and doesn't even finish the book, but comes to a judgment about the reality of faith, reality of uh, these characters, historical reality, uh, Japanese um, past. All of that is, is, you know, and those skillful uh, hand um, is, is made to um, layered into uh, this, this particular dilemma um, that the readers will have to be uh, confronted by. How is it that this is something so available in present end that, that there needs to be, again, you talk about the mother love of God that's yes. unconditional, unrelenting, right. Right. that forgives the criminal child, that, yes. that is non-judgmental. Yes. And that that is, I mean, we know this from theology, we also know it from human development, right? Your wife's yeah. a psychotherapist. I mean, yeah. That's what we, everybody wants developmentally, right? Yes. Why is it that churches seem to be the places that are the least hospitable to that sort of unmitigated mm-hmm. word? It always seems to be when churches preach grace, it's grace and. Grace and, but not too far. <laughs> acceptance, but not that much acceptance. Yes. I mean, you're, yeah. you're justified <laughs> once, but you get upset, you know, like you're yeah. unconditional. But discipleship program has to kick yeah. in quickly. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just seems like so much of that is right. like, it seems like the kind of controlling aspect that you say that actually probably yeah. inoculated Japanese culture from, <laughs> from Christianity. And maybe well, inoculates and, a lot of Americans and, too. Everybody. Yeah, right. And what I argue in the book is actually what is hidden in Japan is is the key to unlock our, our gospel. Mm. We we need this, you know. We need to understand that <clears throat> failures um, and our inability to live in grace, uh, to trust grace a hundred percent, you know, is is part of what is creating this divisive, polarized culture. You know, that is it's so clear from especially recent events um, how persecution and discrimination and marginalization and, and warfare is so easily part of our conversation, how to exclude people, you know. And this is, this is what you're talking about in the church leadership. We spend so much time dealing with exclusion of people, and we spend so little time nurturing as leaders. I, I've been there. I've, I'm the first to admit that you know, and anytime you border on this nurturing side of faith, you're you're considered antinomian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a suspect because yeah. you're not making this judgment, black and white judgment, about a situation or about a person. And and I I think there's there's a deep discrepancy between um, the fullness of the gospel story. I think it has something to do with uh, the integrated reality of making the you know the creation narrative and new creation narrative and so beauty and mercy become both suspect mm. in a world in which we're trying to fix everything through a re, you know we call it redemptive you know uh, theology but, <laughs> right, right. but, but that <laughs> yeah. means that means we have to get it right right you right. know we have to fix it um, when when in fact the overall narrative of creation and new creation is that you are totally broken and pulverized you know and and that's the only way to get to where god wants us and and then we need to start creating in that brokenness i think robert capon says that jesus doesn't save the world from its death but in its death in its death and, yes. and so Beautiful. coming yes. to yes. this yeah that's right and that's... Full realization and and then though helps us with with that journey do you think i mean where are 
cultural moment that seems so bereft of empathy. Like, I mean, just look at our political cycle where no, nobody wants to, you know, yeah. If it, it, the, people don't want to hear about the way working class is paying. People who were, voted for the winner of the election don't want to hear about people yeah. who feel scared. And, people, and everyone feels like an exile, right? Yeah, if you're a liberal, you feel like we're right. in a right-wing that's takeover. Right. Yeah. If you're a conservative, you yeah. feel like we're going socialist. Right. If you're an immigrant, right. you feel like uh, right. your back's against the wall. If if right. you know if you're majority and it, it rust belt you're like the immigrants taking it over you know yeah. if you're a gun rights person yeah the nr the nr is taking <laughs> yeah, over your NRA. Right. so yeah part of, it's, it's the, uh, part of like the beauty of art the ability to em- give us a capacity to empathize to see beyond right our own vantage point and mm-hmm. be taken into something transcendent yeah so it's that objectivity once again you're know, being marginalized you know and artists are so used to that experience and they be they have deep empathy uh, for those who are outcast or situations and we should develop our imagination toward that but oftentimes artists are also conscripted to culture wars, you know, that they, they have to be polarizing. They have to uh, sound alarms and, mm. um, you know, be the canary in the coal mine. But, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I, that's certainly, you know, prophetic voice is certainly needed in, even today. But I think you're right. What is more needed is how we can depict a new narrative into the conflict you know, through the conflict, into the brokenness, into the very heart of aggression. And I spent a chapter in the book talking about Senorikyu, the tea master of uh, 16th century Japan that preceded Silent Story. And I, I, you know, I did that because of this necessity to bring in a context for how the persecution happened, and but also how Christianity can survive through that dark times. Mm. And Likyu presents to us in literally in the wartime, mm. you know, this mm. is the Sengoku Jidai, it's, it's called war period, mm. um, with all sorts of conflicts um, and uncertainty and fear, created this uh, amazing art form of tea, which to this day, uh, uh, there's no question that everybody agrees that Likyu was the quintessential Japanese artist. Hmm. You know, he is the source of many of the cultural realities that Japan experiences. Hmm. And we have, uh, in my research, you know, have a lot of evidences that, that, that his connection to Christianity was very, very, not only important, but it was essential to this message of Shalom mm. that he was speaking into the powers of that those days. You know, imagine having, you know, creating an art form that Putin and Trump <laughs> will be forced to deal with their inner selves. Mm. This is what Nikki did mm. and accomplished successfully over and over in the time when, when that's the least last thing you would expect. Mm. And, and so I think it is... It is empathy, creating that um, way through the Eucharistic language of tea to bring in trust and, uh, you know, safety to the conversation, uh, but also this this way of, um, I, I think, bringing the possibility of new creation into that brokenness. And, and, and the tea master is able to bring all of that 
um, you know, to mm. communicate that without using words. Mm. Um, so this art form, I, I think, is something that we all need to learn from, you know, and especially for such a time as this. And, and that level of empathy that attuned practices like this can bring uh, to, to the future of, uh, of our cultural conversation. Is it harder for you to use words in art form? Like, because you're, you're a visual artist yeah, and, then, and I, then you're a pretty good writer, though. So is that... Right. I, I'm a good writer because I, I, I understand the impossibility of communication. Mm. <laughs> and I feel that. And I, 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 not, I feel that in my bones. You know, because, because of what I said, you know, I grew up, but growing up by culture, never, never really mastering, feeling like always an exile, always feeling like you, you need your first grade grammar lessons you know that you're always fading you know so that takes the pressure off in some sense like hey look this is never going to be perfect when you're in. yeah and and in a, in a sense you know i have to trust my intuition right and i, I had to listen to the voice that is coming out of myself creation whatever it is uh endo um and i don't i don't assume ever that i i am able to communicate communicate that well so it it's it it is an advantage in that sense because I you know I think most of the time we think we can communicate and we're so frustrated when the other person doesn't get us. Well, I know that if anything close to you know communication happens, it's a miracle. Are you harder on yourself with visual mediums? Because it is is there you know, do you have a higher I, standard for what you I, I I am naturally um, you know perfectionist because of the, the attunement the right that you you go through um <clears throat> but i have come to understand that grace can operate so beautifully there too you know even I, for you <laughs> well i i yeah. live in that zone you mm. know and i i when i'm creating the 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 sense of this presence of the sacred is so real to me that i can't you know when I was a young artist, you, you're dealing with self-expression. You're trying to, you know, express your ego. When you, but you know, having gone through so much of that, and and you know, knowing that my art is about giving away rather than taking, that it is ultimately because of Christ that uh, it is it is about the gift of. Mm. Whatever God has given you in flowing into the world, into new creation. Mm. I, I seriously believe that, that the, when I create, that I'm somehow tapping into that reality that we, you know, we don't understand, we don't fully understand. So we're in your studio right now. Why birds? Like, I've heard birds. And, and... <laughs> I, I inherited those uh, parakeets from uh, my second son's girlfriend and... and uh, uh, Bruce and Eugene, they're, they're both girls. <laughs> they keep you company here in the studio. Yeah, you know, I I, I do like uh, living things. I I like this idea of being in a farm and nurturing things. You know, mm. whether it be vegetables or uh, birds. Um, I have chickens here too, um, and somehow that's connected to what I do as an artist. You know, art that is not about just producing this mm -hmm. fast art. You know. Um, one image after another, but but growing art, you know that that happens slowly, uh, mixing your own paint and and then feeding your way uh, mm. into an image, um, and and it is not you know so that I can have an exhibit. You know I do have exhibits, but the goal is not to finish your work, but 
to get to a point where it's giving birth to other paintings, you know, and that that is organic process mm-hmm. and it's generative process, and and so I I've, I've that's what I do here uh, in, in in the studio um, here in Princeton and and in Pasadena. You haven't seen, there's no like pre-cut of silence. You have have you seen any? pre-cuts or anything I, I have seen it but i signed a non-disclosure okay. <laughs> agreement so i can't talk about it except to say except to say that um from from the script on um i thought i i thought this is so faithful to endo um and you know martin scorsese told me personally that several things he wanted to make sure that happened uh, with the film one was that it's it's faithful to Endo and that it's faithful to the martyrs of 17th mm. century Japan. And the film is, mm. um, it's, it's, it's this even more than what I imagined it could be. It is, it is one of the most, I think, moving experiences of, yeah, faithfulness of somebody who is not, you know, who struggled with all of this certainly as all of us have, but, um, but this is, this is going to be, uh, amazing. Yeah. Will you come back on the podcast in the new year after it's been released? Sure. And I've seen it, so we can yeah, talk about sure, the film. Sure, sure. I mean, we can talk about the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I tweeted after you know people have been seeing the trailer. I I saw it like three weeks ago, but I said you can do a class on that. Mm, mm. I mean that you know how that's set up and you know and um, what it says translating the novel into film. And the, the actors, you know, even the glimpse of all of the scenes, um, you, you could, hmm. you know. <laughs> we will talk more. Yeah. Thanks so, so much for your time. You've been incredibly generous. Absolutely. And I, I, I love that I've been in your studio now. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> You're welcome. Within the sound of silence. Restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone Neath the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and damp When my eyes were stared By the flash of a neon light That split the night well, from silence to sound, the sound not of silence, but us conversing. Back yet for another week on the Mockingcast Roundtable. I'm with David Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist for Mockingbird Ministries. Howdy, Scott. And with Stephanie Phillips. Hey. Who is joining us, been on the podcast as an interviewee, and is a contributor to our website, as a writer, but this is her first time in the round table and is not just a great writer, overall person, mother and spouse, but is a dentist. One of my favorite things. <laughs> I love dentistry. On leave right now, but yes, yeah, still licensed. So my my buddy, one of my closest friends is Dennis Stephanie, and he was he was giving me a root canal recently. And I said, What if we did did something like uh and, and, and we infiltrated the canal with Novocaine and shot something right into the nerve just to make it extra numb. And he th- thought it was a good suggestion. So, <laughs> I, you know, people love giving you hearing suggestions about how to do their job. So 
I'm sure uh, he, he loved it. He he consulted <laughs> me on the film. I love it. If I if I would be a dentist if I had the intellectual skills and the manual dexterity. It's the only thing that stopped me. Well, it doesn't take a lot of intellectual skills or I wouldn't be in the field, believe me. My brain doesn't work so well anymore, but but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how your morning's been, but I got up early. I I worked out, I'm doing this great workout, hardcore. Tony Horton, 22 minutes a day, boot camp. Then I showered, shaved, had my coffee, read the lectionary readings, and read from a wonderful resource, The Mockingbird Devotion. Yeah. So you can feel the self-righteousness. Me too. Oozing, easing <laughs> through the thing. So speaking I read, of- I didn't read from it, <laughs> by <did>. the way. <laughs> no. Shame. Speaking of resources, David. Yes. Big, big, big week. I can't believe it. I feel like my head's still spinning. Yesterday, we opened up pre-orders for both Sarah Condon, the Reverend Sarah, uh, who's normally on this cast. Um, and it's kind of nice to, 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 to be able to announce it when she's not here because <laughs> we can then just praise her to the skies without her getting embarrassed. But her book, Churchy, The Real-Life Adventures of a Wife, Mom, and Priest, is now available for pre-order. It'll probably be up on Amazon and other channels on Monday. Um, it's just fantastic. I hope people have seen the cover. It's, um, it's everything that, uh, uh, that I think she set out to do and a lot more. It's extremely funny, but it's also super touching and profound. And a, it, it's, it's very devotional. In fact, I think you can read it in that way, but also kind of tells her story and in her inimitable voice, lots of sass, <laughs> um, but, and uh, lots of sarcasm. I, there's already been some requests for an audiobook, And I think we're going to make that happen just because she is a singular personality. The other book, which is a huge, huge honor for us, is that we put out a collection, an unpublished collection, a heretofore unpublished collection of Robert Capon's essays called More Theology and Less Heavy Cream. And I cannot wait for people to get a hold of that because it just contains so many fresh Caponisms and uh, just incredible turns of phrase and uh, stories of grace. And it's sort of a fictionalized thing. It, it, it's almost devised description. So yesterday was huge. People should check out the website. Uh, Monday should check out Amazon. Uh, we'll continue to hawk these things and shove them down your throats. But um, th this is the first time we can officially do that. So send us all your money. <laughs> And I'm, I, I mentioned a few times in Sarah's book, right? <laughs> I think you're referred to as Pastor Scott Jones. At one point, it said Pastor slash Podcaster. And I think we decided to go just with Pastor because um, I don't know what the reasoning behind that was. I don't think it had anything to do with your personal hygiene regime, though. <laughs> it should have. It should have. All right, moving up. Let's talk about credit ratings in China, which is what everybody's, it's the rage right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was sent my way like uh, four or five times. Wall Street Journal reported on China's new tool for social control, a credit rating for everything. Beijing wants to give every citizen a score based on behavior such as spending habits, turnstile violations, and filial piety, which can blacklist citizens from loans, jobs, air travel. The Communist Party wants apparently to have this out nationwide by 2020. And it is, it's just, I think the term Orwellian is, is used in there three or four times, 1984. It's scary. What it is, is that episode of Black Mirror, the first episode of the third season, uh, come to life. Uh, I'll explain to you. Um, it's, they're beginning to compile digital records of social and financial behavior to rate creditworthiness. 
A person can incur black marks for infractions such as fair cheating, jaywalking, and violating family planning rules. Um, and in time, Beijing expects to draw on bigger combined data pools, including a person's internet activity. I mean, that strikes fear <laughs> into the hearts of many people out there. The national social credit system's aim, according to the slogan repeated in planning documents, is to, quote, allow the trustworthy to roam everywhere under heaven while making it hard for the discredited to take a single step. I mean, that is, uh, that's yeah. rough. I think this is, um, apparently they've already, they've also have, uh, I've learned, first learned that they have blacklists for badly behaved <laughs> tourists. And, uh, you know, how on earth they're actually going to be able to monitor 1.4 billion people remains to be seen. But, um, it is, uh, they talk about it as, is the Chinese are sort of positing it as, as, as a way to rebuild trust in uh, corrupt systems. And I'm not sure, this would be the way I would choose to rebuild people's trust is to sort of have, you know, 24 seven surveillance, yeah. uh, and then ban them from traveling outside of the country. It, it is, it's, it's scary, but it's also, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll all be proved wrong. And it'll work beautifully. Yeah. If you, if you, you know, if, if, if you don't, you know, if people know, may know that in China, uh, parents over 60 can <laughs> sue their children for not visiting regularly or not ensuring they have enough food. Uh, and it's sort of like, it's one of the 10 commandments. It's kind of run wild. We, we reported on that a few years ago, but this kind of takes it to a whole new level, uh, of, uh, legalized mandated uh yeah. morality uh in a way that i stephanie what um, do you think your credit score I, would I be think in china discredited sounds about accurate it seems you know what's the difference between <laughs> tw- trustworthy and discredited because i feel like we're all going to be in the discredited column it seems like they have confused uh trust and fear um they're inspiring fear right because that it, this is you know this has the law written all over it right and as i read this it reminded me of of one of our primary motivators in our sinfulness to obey the law is fear you know until grace enters in and changes that mm-hmm. you know, to obedience but it reminded me of um i don't know if y'all saw the it was either the opening or closing ceremonies to the Beijing Summer Olympics do you remember was it 08 when they were there um, they forget. just had this yeah, what they um, do it, it just so many thousands of um, athletes and flag bearers and dancers and and it was all uniform and it was all perfect because this is what they're striving for, right? Is perfection. And as I was watching it, I was like, there's something about this that's bugging me and I can't put my finger on it. And I realized later it was that it was the perfection. Everyone was the same. There was no individuality. There was nothing like I remember watching the London opening ceremonies where they did, I think, um, like reenactments from literature or something. And so there was no narrative. It was just perfect uniformity. You can imagine, you know, the Chinese soldiers. It looked kind of like that. And when you have that, when that's what you're striving for, first of all, if that's your your standard, you're not going to get it. But you also have no room for individuals, right? And so it's um it it makes me think of the gospel when Jesus showed up ultimate individual right so i it's just this sad inspiring by fear that's never going to be attained yeah i uh th- this seems to me almost like like it's as if the, the whoever the public policy bureaucrats who thought this up was like look we've seen all these great dystopian films about the future yeah. this is possible yeah. to create this reality <laughs> 
<laughs> like people, the, the, it's it's as if these films are marketed yeah. in China right. as utopian. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah immediately, I want to say, have yeah. you seen any science fiction? But uh, I guess maybe they saw all the same <laughs> films and came to just the opposite conclusions. It's an East-West thing. I don't. I don't know. They, well, they said their um, core value is solving society's problems, and it's. I don't know. That sounds <laughs> impossible for one thing and suspect for another. Well, I think we can agree that this is a uh, seems like a graceless to atheism <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah the science of us website uh which we like to sort of compiles all the social science the findings of the week discovered sort of the the phenomenon that explains why atheists uh or aggressive atheists are so irritating when they argue and they talk about um uh, rationality when taken to an extreme, uh, turns into an ideology. This is kind of like Scott. I remember when we, we reported on the, the fact that they'd proven that the five second rule, when you drop a piece of thing on the ground, a piece of food on the ground, like it's actually unsanitary. They had to go out and prove that. And now they've proved something that it strikes me as completely obvious, but you know, here we are. It's being reported. And it looks like it's a really popular article. It's the phenomenon called moralized rationality that people high in moralized rationality, meaning that they've, they've taken rationality so far, they've embraced it so completely that it's turned into an ideology, consider a virtue to form and evaluate beliefs based on reasoning and evidence and a vice to rely on, quote, less rational processes. The key thing about moralized rationality is realizing that even the committed empiricists among us may, may be bringing moral commitments to the conversation rather than playing things coolly neutral. For some, rationality, in other words, is a moral conviction to the point that it guides impulses around activism, at least in the case of this uh, study. And um, yeah, uh, these results suggest that they that atheists may be motivated by their conviction that it is morally wrong to rely on beliefs that are not backed up by logic and evidence. To the extent that this is the case, it could also explain why their argumentative style frequently comes off as angry and intolerant. So. To me, well, to me, this is all about a belief in nothing is still a belief, right? I mean, we all, we all care, you know, even when we're trying to pretend not to. So it, it's, you know, an act of faith still. It, I mean, I think it uncovers that, you know, whatever we choose to believe or not believe, that's what we're choosing to believe in. That's what it felt like to me. <clears throat> yeah, I think there's, there's like a fiduciary framework, right, to all knowing. Like you have to, to know anything. Like you don't walk into like chemistry class as a sophomore in high school, and say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything with this textbook until yeah. I've repeated all the experience myself. I mean, you're always trusting, even in the most material efforts, you're trusting. But, you know, it's, there's a, um, a great book called uh, Patience with God by Thomas Halleck, who's actually, he was a psychotherapist and trained as a priest behind the Iron Curtain before Czechoslovakia, you know, while it was still communist. And he basically thinks that the, the difference between faith and atheism 
is patience. He said, athe- he says, a- in the book, he says, atheists aren't wrong. They're just impatient. They want to resolve doubt instead of enduring it. And their insistence to the natural world, he thinks, doesn't point to God. He thinks is fundamentally correct. This is like theology of the cross kind of stuff. And he thinks their experience of the absence of God uh, is truthful and shared by believers. His faith isn't a denial of all this, he says, but it's the patient endurance of the ambiguity of the world and the experience of God, God's absence. And then the, um, the epigraph in the, in the book is, is from a quote from Adel Besteroff. And he says, patience with others is love. Patience with self is hope. Wow. Patience with God is faith. That's beautiful. That reminds me of that quote, um, the opposite of faith isn't doubt, but certainty. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. I, th- I think in the certainty is what uh, is what is, gets gets so bothersome when you're when you're actually dealing with someone like this. I remember um, I think it was Jonathan Haidt who talked about, or Tim Kreider, who was saying that the you know that what the social science also bears out is the angrier and more certain you believe you are on on something, the more likely you are to be actually wrong about it. And um, just having dealt with things, you know, on social media and Twitter, you have people who are so certain of themselves um, that they're willing to sort of shout at another person in a kind of uh, depersonalized, uh, really aggressive way. You wonder why the psychology beneath it is like, what? Do you have any conviction in what you're saying that, you, or what, why do you need to overcompensate emotionally in 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 the service of uh, rationality or rightness or what have you? It's um. I guess it's oxymoronic. Not that not that uh, we don't all have our own blind spots, but this particular form of it. Uh, the, the New York Magazine also had an article about a guy who made every. It says like in back in June, every he made every single life decision according <laughs> to logic. He's uh, and it ruined his life. Like, it was, <laughs> well, it certainly didn't ruin Mister Spock's life. <laughs> well, it's a really funny article. We should link to it. I'll link to it in the weekender. But it's like he tried to use logic to negotiate relationships, and even his life at work, and everything fell apart very mm. quickly. So there's more to life than hyper rationality, as we all know. Ben Myers, who's one of the sort of early Christian theology bloggers, I think he's Australian. He wrote a review of this Halleck book, Patience with God, and he said, "I, I think this is ab- absolutely." true about the book. He says, the best thing about Halleck's book, again, in contrast to the usual apologetics, is that it's actually a Christian response to atheism. Surely anything a Christian says to an atheist ought to arise not from an invincible commitment to being right, but from an understanding of the kindness of God, an awareness that there is room in God's family even for those who doubt, those for whom the word God cannot easily be be deciphered from the dark hieroglyphics of the world. Speaking of dark hieroglyphics of the world, big film coming out. <laughs> yes, The Passion of Martin Scorsese. We're talking about 
upcoming his his upcoming adaptation of Shusaku Endo's Silence, which Joshua Redder wrote a wonderful piece on, on the website about it, and Ethan Richardson had done a, like a multi part series on that novel a number of years ago. And this article in the New York Times Magazine chronicles Scorsese's like twenty seven year long. Uh, you know, a, a journey to get this film made. And, you know, if you've seen the trailer, it looks absolutely exquisite. The, the, I heard Robbie Robertson uh, of the band has done the score. Uh, Andrew Garfield looks like he's really turning in a, a performance for the ages. I'll read to you a little bit from the article. Um, it says, uh, talking about Scorsese, as a little boy in Little Italy, he wanted to be a missionary. His parents were not religious, in part because their parents had felt the church's heavy hand in Sicily. Uh, but for him, the church, a malign force in so many coming-of-age stories, was a portal to the world beyond family and neighborhood. I trusted the church because it made sense what they preached, what they taught. I understood that there's another way to think outside the closed, hidden, frightened, tough world I grew up in. Now, that just alone is such a different uh, line than what you normally hear, especially when it comes to Roman Catholic upbringings in New York. Um, he talks to me, he says, I, th I think fast, I move fast. You know, he's an asthmatic. He's like probably the most famous asthmatic in the world. And I think it has something to do with the medication I was given for asthma. It affected the way I breathe, the way I think. I needed to pull back. Film did that for me, and so did the church. They slowed me down. They allowed me to meditate. They gave me a different sense of time. And then he tells the story of the neighborhood priest in his neighborhood Father Principe, who um, was actually, he brought faith and film together. He would take the altar boys uptown uh, and take them to the cinema. And he'd see, show them around the world in eight days, Bridge on the River Kwai. And he sort of, he detested Christian sentimentality or comic book religious aspects. But, um, and so it inspired Scorsese as a young man to draw movie storyboards, including a life of Christ set in right in that neighborhood with the crucifixion taking place on the West Side Piers with the NYPD involved. And, uh, the, but then the article goes on to describe the movie Silence. And I'll read to you just a little bit from this and then I'll, I'll be quiet. But as the two Jesuits, it's about Jesuits going to Japan. Uh, set out for Japan, they find a translator named uh, Kichi, Kichijiro. They're looking for their uh, mentor, who they hear has been uh, or been uh, captured and tortured. In a seedy neighborhood, they, they find this translator and drag him into their mission. He resists. He drinks himself sick. He lies. He bemoans his fate. A convert, he apostatized and was allowed to live, while the shogunate killed his brothers and sisters. Rodriguez, who's played by Andrew Garfield, decides that he is Kichijiro's keeper and grimly bears up as Kichijiro apostas apost uh, apostasizes again and again and finally betrays him to the shogunate. But as Rodriguez is racked by doubts, the peasant becomes the priest's keeper, a man whose faith is rooted in his recognition of his own weakness. Who is more Christ-like, the person who is strong in faith or the one who is weak, who is humiliated? Humiliation, that's the key, Scorsese told me. As Kichijiro says in the movie, where is the place for a weak person in the world we're in? Why wasn't I born when there wasn't any persecution? I would have been a great Christian. It ends, uh, you know, Rodriguez is captured and he's in jail and he hears the cries of Christians who are being tortured outside his cell. He has been told that he can save their lives if he will just step on the few me, which is an image of Christ, and basically renounce his faith. He agonizes, he prays, he feels the offer as a temptation. Weary, hungry, surrounded by suffering and death, he hears a voice he takes to be Jesus. Trample 
it was to be trampled on men that I was born into this world. And so this seeming act of profanity, profanation, is an act of devotion. Uh, and it's this beautiful, um, sort of uh, incredibly Christ-like act that involves denouncing his faith, which makes this such a, um, you know, kind of a cruciform, uh, beautiful uh parable of the faith and story and um people haven't read the the book but as the post says just don't worry about it watch the movie and then go back mm. and read the book because the book is incredible yeah i i haven't read it i i love the, the quote you mentioned where is the place for a weak person and um just the paradox of faith there with the profane kind of being called sacred and the strong being called weak i i loved um when it talked when scorsese talked about his asthma and how that really went into making him the filmmaker he is because he had to, he saw these films so that he could slow down and meditate. It, he says it gave him a different sense of time. And it reminded me, um, I heard Trevor Noah on Fresh Air this week on NPR, and he talked a lot. His book, I've, I've got to get it, it sounds amazing, but he talks about you know, the title oh, of the yeah. book is Born a Crime because being born biracial in South Africa at that time is was a crime. Um, and he also talks about something a little bit more down to earth, which is um, his acne when he was in high school and how it forced him into sort of an observer's stance. And so growing up, he just watched people and found the humor in situations. I just love this idea of our weakness is actually going to make us who we're meant to be. You know, Trevor Noah becoming a comic, Morton Scorsese becoming a filmmaker. These apparent weaknesses actually being markers of of design of who we're supposed to be. I, I love that. I, I had the opportunity to sit down in, in Makoto Fujimura, Fujimura's studio, which was kind of an unexpected blessing when we talked. And I was struck by how much, like, you know, here, like, he and Scorsese have this figure in common in Endo. And Scorsese knew him. Makoto never met him. And so just to learn how this man shaped them was really interesting. It, it, you know, Makoto kept, he and I were talking about Thomas Merton in France, and, and he said that Japan, he sees, is not a pagan nation, but a Christ-haunted nation. And he was talking to me about a pastor he was spoke with recently in Japan who said, look, they were talking about the, ja the martyred believers that silence, you know, narrates the stories of. And he said, look, the martyrs really didn't have descendants. You know, they stopped, they pretty much, you know, I'm either a descendant of people that mm -hmm. renounce the faith or people that forced them to renounce it. And uh, <laughs> I, I just think about that passage in silence where he says, Christ did not die for the good and the beautiful. It's easy enough to die for the good and beautiful. The hard thing is to die for the miserable and corrupt. And if you <laughs> think about the fact that all of the apostles were betrayers, <laughs> uh, were, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if there's anything but failed faith. Well, and th you think about Christ's genealogy, especially this time of year, um, with Advent and his own family line being full of questionable characters. And, you know, we all come from... Redemption can make all of that beautiful, obviously, but you think about that yeah. this, in, during Advent. Yeah, well, friends... I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. <laughs> it, it'll go. It'll go on your credit score, Scott. So you better. Um, you you better write a positive review. Positive or Just negative? Kidding. That's the question. In China, God, you know, <laughs> God loves those people too. I, ha I have to believe. If, if you're talking about the corrupt, right? Anyway, Stephanie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Stephanie. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please go over to iTunes and give us a rating. Maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. Maybe even pass it along via social media to a friend. We exist because of the generosity, support, and enthusiasm of you, our listeners and readers. And for that, we are forever grateful. The podcast is produced by yours truly, ably assisted by my associate, David Peterson. Thanks again for listening. Have a great weekend.